You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I'm sitting here in my office in Brainerd, Minnesota today, and I have, through the miracle of, of technology, a good friend of mine, Johnny Sanfilippo, you know him as Granola Shotgun, on the line, and we're going to disagree on some stuff. So Johnny, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you kindly. <laughs> you and I are, are good friends. I think you were a little bit easy on me in your post where you, you expressed some disagreement with some things that I had, had written. You didn't use my name and call me out personally, even though I think someone else you, you may, maybe you would have, maybe you wouldn't have, but uh, you probably should have. I think it was fair. Let's talk a little bit about these two pieces and where we maybe don't see eye to eye and possibly where we do. My piece was after seeing you, and I wrote uh, about kind of the great things going on in the, in the downtown, which is where most of CNU was, and where, because of my schedule, was the only place that I, I really got to. But then I also talked about this donut of despair, the, the huge sea of, of land mass that surrounds the downtown that is very, has a lot of despair in it, a lot of places that are struggling. You, contrary, spent a lot of time in the area that I called the donut of despair. And I, I think I'd like to start there because you beg to differ with that categorization. And I, I want to give you a chance to talk about your experience there and, and why my moniker for it is certainly not 100% accurate, but maybe not even wholly accurate. Okay, so we're talking about Detroit and what's happened to Detroit physically and economically and culturally over the last 50 or 60 years. From the perspective of a comfortably middle-class person who has lived in a picturesque location uh, all his life, you can look at big chunks of Detroit and think, my God, this place is just horrible. It looks like Berlin in 1945. And that's absolutely true. From my perspective, America doesn't lack picturesque suburban landscapes. We have plenty of that. What America doesn't have enough of are places that are both affordable and easily reworked, you know, at a low price point without massive regulations. And Detroit is an absolute wonderland in that respect. If you ask a 65-year-old, how much student loan debt did they carry when they graduated from university? They said, oh, I didn't have any loans. It was, it was not that big of a deal. If you ask a 45-year-old, they'll say, well, there was like maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in student loans. If you ask somebody who's just graduated from university right now, they've got eighty, dollars $100,000 in student loan debt. If you talk about how much are people earning right now versus what their mortgage is, plus you have to add in maybe two car payments, uh, then there's the whole health insurance thing. Do you have a pension? No, you don't have a pension. You, you might have a 401k, maybe. You know. So the middle class has been squeezed, and as the middle class has been contracting uh, and being chipped away at continuously by all these big economic forces that have been playing out over the last few generations, at the same time, we have really ramped up the constraints and the regulations that make just about everything either illegal or fantastically expensive. What Detroit provides, it's this absolutely unique environment, 
is someplace in America where you not only have access to universities and medical centers and, and the amenities of a big city with a, a real urban core and an international airport, but it's also cheap. Like, you can actually buy property on a cash basis. You know, if you're an ordinary person without a lot of money, you can actually buy something and live in it and, and maybe even operate a business, you know, again, without having to go hat in hand, begging for permission, you know, getting permits, getting big loans from the bank. You can actually just start living your life at a very low price point in a way that you can't really do almost any place else in America. And I'm terrified that some expert is going to come in and try and fix all that. I'd like you to tell a couple of the stories of people that you met there and who they were and, and how they were living, because it does kind of belie, I think, what the upper middle class person living on the cul-de-sac, which, which I, I'll, I'll wear that moniker, for, at least for the sake of this conversation, you know, what, what, what their perceptions would be. Could you, could you just talk a little bit about some of the people you met? So I intentionally didn't stay in the center of Detroit for the Congress for New Urbanism. I could have stayed in the hotel that was designated for you know for people. A lot of my friends from CNU were there. I went out to the so-called donut of the stair at an Airbnb, and there was a young couple that were you know in their twenties, and they bought a 100-year-old brick building it was a duplex four years ago for $13,000. Now, these kids, the married couple, they had made money as bicycle cabs. They were, they were pedicabs, right? So they were literally bicycling around collecting fares, and they had scraped together $13,000 in cash to buy this building. And it came with, I think, four vacant lots on either side. Right? So they got a duplex and a fair amount of land you know, within bicycle distance of the downtown on a cash basis. Now, there aren't that many other places in America you can do that. Now, they were very firm with me. They said, you know, don't go telling people that you can do this and it's going to be easy because they spent four years of blood, sweat, and tears making this place habitable. And it's gorgeous now. I mean, they don't build buildings like this anymore. We don't even know how to build buildings this good anymore, you know, with solid bricks and high ceilings and, and all the details and stuff. They spent a lot of time cherry-picking properties when they were looking to buy, and they, they found just the right one. They were both very talented. They had skills. They were, they were good with their hands. Uh, they were also willing to live with a lot of inconveniences that a lot of other people wouldn't, you know, because it's, it's Detroit, and it's a $13,000 house, and, you know, there's stuff that comes with that. I think my argument is getting a three-bedroom ranch house in California at $800,000 with that mortgage and a couple of car payments, there's a lot of ugly stuff that comes with that, too. You have to pick your poison. This, this young couple were not only able to live in the upstairs unit, uh, but they rent the downstairs flat to people like me. And that's one revenue stream. So that they don't have a mortgage, they do have some revenue stream. Um, it's hard to find stable tenants in Detroit, but if you can get a continuous stream of uh, visitors, uh, that actually gives you the rent you need in a in a way that that makes financial sense. And they also began to farm the land around their house because they could. You know, they were handy. They they would grow a lot of vegetables and they planted fruit trees. And they have uh, animals and things. They're basically homesteading. You know, they're doing what our great grandparents did when they when they headed out into the territories. But again, what what did our great grandparents do? You know, they didn't have a lot of money. They were young. They were capable, and they just needed an environment where they could start with nothing and work their way up. 
uh, and that's what these kids are doing. And the value of their building is increasing because of the, the effort that they put into it. Uh, and little by little, there are other people doing the same thing in their general vicinity. And they're beginning to raise the quality and the value of these buildings incrementally, individually and collectively, so that you know, I can picture myself living there. And I have a pretty strong standard, not for the picturesque suburban thing, but for just for good neighbors and for vitality. And these people have that. They don't have money. It's not always perfect, but I, I definitely love the feeling of being in that place. I, I don't get that on a cul-de-sac. Did I answer your question? Oh, no, perfectly. I, and, and that's exactly the description I wanted you to give because I, I read the piece that you put together and you had some amazing photos. And this was this was beautiful. In many ways, I think the exciting thing about Detroit right now is the fact that there's nobody there to say no to things. You know, you, you can do some of these things and, and nobody is there to say no. I want to ask you about the other side, but talk just a little bit about how that contrasts with other places around the country you've you've been to and why maybe that makes Detroit exciting. If, if that's the word that I'm going to use, I don't know if that's the word you would use, but... Oh, yeah, I'm very excited by Detroit. Yeah, so regulations. Um, I can give you examples from all over the country, and it's, it's always variations on the same theme. We created regulations to prevent bad things from happening, and that's perfectly understandable, but... There's been this accretion, this steady buildup of more and more and more of these rules and regulations, uh, and it's getting more and more detailed and fine-grained. Uh, There's more and more minutia involved in all of these regulations. What it does is it, it, it makes compliance impossible for an ordinary person. The magic of Detroit is that these kids bought this, this building, and they just started to clean it up and fix it, and the, the regulators in Detroit were aware of what they were doing, but... They have such few resources. There, there's such a, there's so much that needs to be done, and and so few uh, municipal uh, resources that they sort of just very quickly say these people are not going to kill anybody. Nothing is going to explode. We're going to leave them alone. We're going to focus on that other thing that might actually hurt somebody. They haven't removed the regulations. They're just selectively enforcing them in a way that is appropriate for Detroit at this moment. Here in Northern California, where I live. There's so much in the way of, of nimbyism and, and regulations that you can't do anything. I mean, nothing. There's no way you can do anything uh, without it breaking some rule, and they very, very strictly enforce them. Uh, and so you either have a million dollars or you leave. You know, that's it. That's why we have such a massive homeless problem right now. Uh, and the homeless people that you see in Sonoma County or in San Francisco, they're not necessarily alcoholics, schizophrenics. These are people who might even be working two or three jobs, and they have to live in, uh, you know, a 40-year-old rusty Winnebago that they park behind a strip mall because that's, that's what qualifies for affordable housing. I tried to build affordable housing, you know, uh, on some property that I own, and the impact fees alone were $24,000. Uh, they were going to make me put in a, a totally redundant and unnecessary sewer line out to the street that was going to be a you know, minimum of $15,000. But, you know, there was this fee and that fee and this, this parameter, and they wanted two off-street-covered parking spaces that were going to be bigger than the house I was trying to build. You know, and, and it just goes on and on and on. So, you know, I'm not going to do it. So I could have provided you know, naturally occurring market rate affordable housing. And the regulations were such that, no, it's not going to happen. So Detroit is the antidote to all of that. I'm, I'm really concerned that 
well-intentioned people are going to try to make it better and sterilize the environment. And like the last decent place in America where you can actually like do stuff on your own is going to go away. A few months back, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but I, I wrote an article about Flint, Michigan and their, their water issue. One of the things that I suggested was uh, instead of replacing the water system that they have now, which is, is essentially sized for firefighting, you know, keep that firefighting system, which who cares if the water is drinkable or not? It doesn't matter if you're using it to, just to put out fires, but put in an, another kind of parallel, smaller system that would be, you know, a tenth of the price, but just serve people for drinking water. My sense, you know, was I'm the engineer. I'm trying to come up with a practical solution here. Uh, the problem is that the, the water's no longer drinkable. Let, let's, you know, get people drinkable water and solve that problem without spending a billion dollars on a, on a system we don't need. The reaction and the pushback I got was, was really fierce. There were a lot of people who thought it was a decent idea, but you had a, a lot of people who came out and said, how dare you? How dare you suggest that the people of this place, Flint, Michigan, should have less of a, a standard, less of a, a approach to life than, than everybody else? I, Understand, I'm incredibly sympathetic to everything that you said so far, and, and I'm agreeing with you 100%. But I'd like you to answer those people who would, would push back and say, you know, how dare you, Johnny, you know, accept a lower standard for, for people in this country? You know, how dare you allow them to not have building inspections? And, you know, these are the poorest people. Why are we, you know, why are we not going to the mat for these people? So respond to that if you wouldn't mind. Your primary argument in, in the context of Detroit was that the municipal government is insolvent and it cannot maintain the roads, the sewer systems, the water supply system that it was built when the population was 60% greater than it is now. I mean, the population shrunk massively. So the burden on the municipal government is the same, but there's infinitely less tax base to support all of that stuff. And so you said we should gather up all of the, the, the viable bits out there on the edge and pull it all toward the center so you can consolidate municipal services so that you're, you're providing a high standard of pipes, wires, roads, whatever, in the core, and then you're going to let everything else go. I was in agreement with you, except I disagreed on the way we should do it. What Detroit is now is it's a much smaller core city surrounded by rural villages. And that's what the Donut Despair has essentially become. It's no longer part of the city. It's now mostly vacant land, trees, uh, little, little farms, and little settlements. So by all means, dismantle the existing infrastructure that's falling apart already. I mean, it just can't be maintained. It's not going to happen. The money isn't there. And substitute private septic systems, private wells, our rainwater catchment and cisterns, you know, just acknowledge the reality that this isn't a big city anymore. It's a collection of small towns and rural villages. And rural villages don't have giant sewer treatment plants. You know, they have they have septic systems. Why not create a legal mechanism where the viable homes start to switch over to those smaller, uh, more independent systems? So it's no different from having a house in the country you just have a house in the country that happens to be, you know, a 20-minute bike ride from downtown Detroit. I don't see that as a compromise. I don't see that as a less than. I think a lot of rich people in the suburbs have septic systems and wells. I don't think that's a big problem. Now, you can argue, you know, is the well water in Michigan, in that part of the world, 
clean enough to drink. I, I think these are technical problems that you have to work through. I think that there's a compromise that satisfies everybody if you do it right. One of the the places where you did, <laughs> it was gentle, but you kind of mocked me a little bit, was that idea of relocating buildings. And I understood what you were saying. And actually what you just said, I, I totally agree with. As I would go through the neighborhoods in that area that I called the donut of despair, what I would see is well-maintained house with flowers in the yard next to a house boarded up next to a, a house with a tree growing up through the, the middle of the collapsed roof, all three of which looked like they were built at the same period of time, all three of which looked like, you know, they had not too long in the distant past been very viable places. My fear was the person who's living there in that one house, maintaining the yard and, uh, you know, planting the flowers, how do we help that person not lose everything? How do we, how do we help that person essentially not wind up like the boarded up house and the house with the, 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 the tree through it? If I were the mayor, what would I do? And I guess I'm, I'm asking this to you. If it's not to collect, you know, the rotting parts and, and try to agglomerate them in the, in the downtown and in these collection of villages, is, is that the answer or is there something else we, we should, be trying to do, or is this just, there's nothing that can be done. And, and essentially we've just got to live with the table we set. I think you're coming from a, a different perspective from the self-selecting population that's voluntarily choosing to live in these places. What you don't understand is that that thing that you call blight, that's the primary amenity for a lot of the people who choose to live there. The opposite, it's easier to explain, I will not live in a place where there's a homeowner's association with endless regulations about what color my drapes can be. I won't live in a place where there are rules that say that my shrubbery has to be pre-approved by a committee. The primary amenity of big parts of Detroit is the ruin porn. That's why people are attracted to it. They don't see that blight as blight. They see it as opportunity, and they see it as freedom. What you're doing is you're coming in and you're saying that lovely home with the flowers in the yard and the lovely people living there, um, we need to free them from the ugliness all around them. What you don't get is that the ugliness is the thing they like about it. <laughs> this is why I love talking to you because yes, you you are right. You you are absolutely right. I drive through that neighborhood. I bike through that neighborhood. And what I see is a downward trajectory. And you're telling me, no, Chuck, back up. And see opportunity. See that, you know, this is the, this is the one place where people can actually go to start building from nothing up to something. Am I summarizing your argument correctly there? Yes, but your proposal, and I don't know how serious you were about your proposal, but you did a post about this where you said, why not find the decent buildings, jack them up, relocate them close to the center of Detroit? partly because of the municipal insolvency and the infrastructure problems, and partly because you thought that these people deserve to live in a better neighborhood. Why not gather them all and put them in one place? And I responded viscerally to, to that as like, no, you don't understand. These are the best people who have self-selected to colonize the worst parts of the city, and they're the seeds that, uh, they're the, um, the, the little nodes that will grow and, and cluster up other better people who will bit by bit, fix up the ruins and turn them into something better. That they're the, the seeds for the little rural villages like you're describing. Uh, a lot of the stuff is not going to make it. A lot of it is just going to continue to decline and, and turn into rubble 
the quail and the deer and the, and the oak trees will take over. That's fine. I don't see that as a problem. The problem is you deciding who is going to be pulled and moved away. Uh, it, so I was in Chernobyl a couple of years ago, Pripyat, you know, that part of Ukraine that had been devastated by the, the radiation. And there were 4,000 people still living there. Uh, the people that were uprooted and transported to distant cities wherever the government could find a decent apartment for them to relocate to after the disaster, they lived less long. They were, they were more miserable. They were detached from their homeland and from their families and their friends and all the things that made life good for them. Uh, even though they had a physically healthier, better place to live, they didn't live as long. The people who stayed behind in their little cottages next to the, you know, the plutonium tainted landscape, they actually had longer lives and they were happier. So you're sort of missing the whole human part of what makes a place a place. And, and that's, that's your engineering background. You can't help that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I accept that. It, it's fascinating because I, I heard Andres Duani talk about this in a way that made perfect sense for me after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And, you know, I was offended by what went on in the Lower Ninth Ward afterward. You know, the, the Brad Pitt homes just to me are a bizarre treatment of, of the poor. But yet I wasn't to the point where I just wanted to walk away, Right. Duani explained this in the best way that, that, that I grasped. He, he said, you know, you, you have people who have a lifestyle based on leisure and they're not, you know, working nine to five jobs. And he actually said, not to me, but to a larger group, you know, they don't live like Minnesotans <laughs> and you want to come in and say, well, we'll buy your house for what it's worth. You know, we'll give you your $30,000 for your home pre flood. And we'll rebuild you a new home and it's going to cost a quarter million dollars and we'll finance your mortgage for you so you can get a, a low rate and, and we'll help you with the down payment. But what you've done is you've transformed people who have lived in a culture based on leisure to now a culture based on living like Minnesotans, right? You're going to, you know, go to your job, punch your clock, make your paycheck, come home, pay the man and uh, repeat. And that's not what this place is. Is that what you're trying to tell me here in Detroit, that I should be seeing, that I'm not? So the, the young couple that I stayed with when I was in Detroit, uh, they didn't have jobs. Now, they worked constantly. They worked all day long. They worked late into the night. They worked for themselves, and they worked on things that gave them a great deal of personal satisfaction, and they were highly diversified. You know, they had a bicycle rental business, and they had an, uh, you know, they had a the Airbnb rental thing that they were busy, you know, cleaning and maintaining the house for that. They were gardening. They they had all sorts of online enterprises where they made and sold things over the internet to a you know global audience. Most of their uh, customers are actually in Germany, so they were working all the time. But they 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 weren't employed in the way that would make sense to a Lutheran. You know, <laughs> it's not that kind of a thing. So. Again, if they had a $250,000 mortgage, they couldn't do any of the things that they loved. They would, they would be stuck doing a job. In fact, they had that kind of a life before, and they, they walked away from it because they were working for companies that, that you know, they weren't happy in their jobs, and the companies that they worked for didn't pay them nearly as much as, you know, as they wanted. And um, you know, the other thing about the people in New Orleans is that, you know, what are these people in the ninth ward going to do to earn enough money to pay a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars mortgage? Like, how many minimum wage, part time jobs would that family need to pay that one mortgage? Like, it's not even an actual um, possibility for them. 
It's, it's never going to happen. The numbers simply don't add up for them in that location. And how much more valuable is it to have time to be with your family and your friends and do things that you enjoy? And so, you you know, you don't have a, a $50,000 kitchen with, you know, granite countertops. That's not important to them. Why would you impose that on people? I don't know if you've read any of Charlie Leduff's stuff. Yes? No? I have. You, you're familiar with his work. And a, a lot of what I've, I've taken away from him is that, you know, hey, Detroit's a, a very real place with very real people. He, you know, paints the picture of, of the comeback Detroit kind of in a way that you are. Uh, but he also, you know, as a journalist, gets really, really intimate with, you know, what it's like to live in a place when people light the, the house across the street on fire and nobody shows up for 30 minutes. And, you know, what it's like to live in a place where the homeless guy is found in the spring because he froze and, and was buried under ice and, you know, all you got was the boot sticking out. Is that an exaggeration or am I overreacting to that part of Detroit or? No, that, that is very real. That, that, is, that is not an exaggeration, and it's very real. I've been told by more than a few people in Detroit that for the first year that they lived in their house, they could not leave it vacant overnight because they'd come back and the pipes would be stolen. So, it, you know, that's, that's very real. So how do we deal with, with that? Because I see Detroit, and I mean, you started this, and, and I think quite rightly saying that I see Detroit as like the end game of the Ponzi scheme, the end game of you know, what happens when you denude a city and, and spread it out over an area? And even had they not lost the population, I think they would have arrived at this destination because it, there's just not enough there there to, to make good on all the promises. What happens to that part of Detroit when you reach that, that terminal phase? So, you know, my favorite quote, you know, you can say it before I do, you know, failure fixes itself. Uh, people do what they do because it seems like a good idea at the time. And as it gets to its, uh, you know, its logical conclusion, it fails, and then people start to do something else. Detroit got there before everybody else, but most places are heading in that same general direction. Uh, I was just in Columbus, Georgia, which is a charming place, lovely people. You know, it was been a week there, and yet they're doing everything that every other town is doing. They're going to wind up in a Detroit-like situation like everybody else, because what they keep doing is adding more suburban subdivisions, more strip malls, more highway expansion projects out on the edge. But their population has not grown at all in recent years. They're making their place bigger. They're putting lots of new buildings, but there are no new people. So what they're doing is every time they put a new home or a new shop somewhere out on the edge, they're just lowering the value of the stuff that was built 30, 40, 50 years ago. They've noticed that. You know, that's basically why they ask people like me to show up and look around. Uh, they, they've realized, wait a minute, we, if we keep doing this, it's not going to end well. Now, the machinery of building suburbia is all the interrelated parts and all the, the cultural and political and economic incentives are such that you can't stop that from happening, but it'll stop itself eventually. That's, you know, Detroit just got there sooner. And then it provides us with this magnificent opportunity to you know, reconsider our options and try to do something else. As a country, we're not really ready to have that conversation, but it will happen. It won't necessarily happen pleasantly. It won't happen in a planned way, but we will eventually have that epiphany. And then the places that are going to thrive in the future are mostly the places that we abandon. You know, the, the best urban places with the best building stock are the older places you know, built before World War II. And uh, Columbus, Georgia has got 
a magnificent wealth of those places, and they will be repopulated, and they will increase in value. And the same thing is going to happen in Detroit. Failure will fix itself, eventually. I agree with you, and I, I, I totally agree with you on, on all of that. I, I think the place that I struggle, and I think where I kind of threw out that idea of, of relocating uh, you know, things before they fell apart completely at the end of my piece was – Really a reaction to the, the, the thought of what would a mayor do? You know me. There's zero part of me that wants the federal government to, to try to fix Detroit. And there's zero part of me that wants the state of Michigan to try to fix Detroit. But if, I don't know if you were in the opening plenary, but I was. And I heard the mayor of Detroit say, Hey, my campaign was no neighborhood left behind. I'm, I'm, you know, we're not walking away from any neighborhood and, you know, standing ovation, everybody's clapping. And I'm thinking that's an insane policy. Like that, that's, you're either delusional or you're lying. And I don't really like either outcome. How would you react to his campaign promise? And, and what would you, you know, what would you advise a mayor of Detroit to do? The mayor of any city has to say that. He can't say that 40% of his constituents are just going to be abandoned. Now, he may very well know that's the reality, you know, in terms of how things are really going to play out. But you can't say that and then expect to keep your job. I think one of the reasons that people, as abrasive as I often am, uh, I play the the role of the court jester who can speak truth to people, uh, you know, who can't say what needs to be said. This chunk of your city is dead. And it's not coming back. And it's, you know, that's sad, but that's just the way it is. Or more likely, this place that looks prosperous right now is a time bomb, and it's going to die, and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it. And, you know, if you're an elected official, you can't say that. If you are uh, an employee, you can't say that and expect to keep your job. If you're uh, one of these hardworking, determined uh, community organizers, you can't say that because people won't like you and support your cause. So nobody is really in a position where they can say this stuff. What people all understand is that this is going to happen. There are going to be losers, and uh, that's just that's just you know that's just the nature of life. There are winners and losers. I think the more interesting conversation to have is to acknowledge that things are going to change. That the, the whole all the nature of the way things are, are going to be done in the future is going to be different from the way we do it now. And that if you can pay attention to those changes as an individual or as a community, you can uh, you can prepare for those changes and benefit from them uh, so that you're one of the new winners instead of being one of the old losers. That just is a much more productive conversation. The mayor can't have that talk. Most people can't. Uh, but strong towns, you know, which is why I'm a member, they react, uh, you know, Mostly, is we can have that conversation for other people. We can we can open up the conversation to the reality that's hitting us all at the same time, and uh, allow other people a slightly safer space to toy with these concepts. Am I just being the the central Minnesotan engineer here, the utilitarian? Nothing you said I argue with. I I agree with your analysis, and I agree with what you've said. I think I'm reacting to the notion that. The 1950s and 60s white flight, you know, where we abandoned the, the, the poorest people in inner cities was really very traumatic and, and in many ways very, I, I don't even want to use the word unfair, but just very brutal to people who didn't have a lot of, of options. I see this essentially the, the inverse of, of white flight or the inverse of suburbanization, the, the de-suburbanization, the kind of end of this experiment. 
as being even more brutal to people in, we can divide it along racial lines. Often it is, but, but I think increasingly today it's, it's not. It's just, you know, as Kareem Abdul Jabbar said, the Ebola like condition of being poor in this country. I hear you arguing that A, this is a good thing for the poor in many ways, but I also have trouble with the, the transition from one to the other. Is that just tough? I mean, are we, are we just, is strong towns, are, are we just going to be the people who say that's the medicine we're going to have to take to get to a place that, that makes sense? I, I come from an entirely different perspective. If you've been poor in America for the last 300 years, you've always been screwed. The screwed looks different in different decades, in different states, you know, in different centuries, but you're always screwed. That's just the way we do it here. There are other countries that actually genuinely want to help the poor and lift them up, and they do all the things that are necessary. Um, we're not that kind of country. We think if you're poor, you're stupid, you're lazy, you don't deserve a good life. That's how we do things here. I don't have to agree with it, but I'm not going to waste my time trying to change a national culture that's deeply, deeply rooted in a have and have not set up. That's just America. Now, you know, Minnesotans are desperate to airlift casseroles to Haiti when there's an earthquake. I mean, they just want to make things better, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a we have a little bit too much. You know, we're a little bit too like the Puritan, you know, n- northeast of this country at, at times. I, I totally yeah. agree. Uh, I'm I'm um, fairly amoral in the way I look out at the world. I, I don't think that there's a genuine desire in this country to really help the poor. I think there's a lot of lip service and a lot of talk, but at the end of the day, it's easier to move across a county line where life is better and the poor people are farther away from you. And I think that's what we're going to continue to do moving forward. And the poor are going to wind up in miserable places, and they are going to be um, beat down and cut off from opportunity, and life is going to be bad. And that's just the way it's always been. I'm not saying we should do that. I'm saying that's my assumption moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's been like that for 300 years. Right, right. I look around my own community here, and, and I see, I think this is the frustrating thing to me, is that I, I see, and not just here, but, but you know, we've done these models all over the country where we show that the poorest neighborhoods are paying the most taxes per acre. Uh, they're subsidizing the wealthy neighborhoods. This is kind of a universal American experience that the poor subsidize the wealthy and, and people just find that astounding. Like, how can that possibly be? And I, I've, I've looked into people's eyes as, I, as we had these conversations and I, I, I sense a path towards, I don't want to say lifting all boats, but, but finding a way where we can have a consensus like these, these neighborhoods can be improved and improve lives for the people here while also, you know, improving stuff for everybody. Like if we actually focused on these neighborhoods where poor people live and don't go in with our big schemes to revolutionize them, but go in with humility to say, where are you struggling and what's the next smallest thing we can do to fix them? We can not only fix the budgets in our cities, but we can actually help real people live better lives. Am I just naive in that? I mean, am I, am I just overly idealistic? So look at Detroit. Um, there was a whole period of time where America wanted to help the poor in Detroit. And the way we were going to do it in, in one iteration was to build high-rise apartment buildings to provide you know, modern, clean, efficient housing for the poor. And we built the buildings, and they had adjacent parkland, and we built the new 1960s schools near them, 
And uh, but there was this cultural thing that was happening at the same time. There was a lot of political horse trading. The labor unions wanted the the uh, jobs to build these things because it kept the plumbers and the masons and the electricians fully employed. Uh, but they made sure that when they put in the new highway, the highway was actually an enormous moat that cut the poor projects off from the middle class places where the electricians and the masons and the plumbers lived. And, uh, you know, they made sure that they were in different school districts. This is how it works out in reality, right? It was always concentrate the poor people, stick them over there, and then allow some unresponsive, underfunded bureaucracy to deal with it. And if it fails, who cares? You know, we have ours over here on the other side of the moat. The next iteration, you know, would be the conservative capitalist, Republican version of that same process was, let's take these desperately poor people and let's uh, empower them in the ownership society. Let's give them uh, mortgages to, you know, three-bedroom ranch homes on cul-de-sacs, uh, and let's give them car loans. And they're subprime, you know, and we know they can't possibly pay these bills, and they don't have the income for it, and not everybody's actually cut out you know, to live in a suburban home with three cars in the garage. But we're just going to pretend and we're going to load them up with debt and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be part of this new capitalist utopia. You know, and we know how that ended. You know, it was default, it was bankruptcy, it was foreclosure. That wasn't any better, right? So every time you come up with some scheme to help the poor, it just doesn't end well, just generally, you know? And that's the thing that some people didn't have, you know, good outcomes from that, but the big picture is not good. What nobody wants to do is to let loose, to, to allow people to sort things out for themselves. Like I said, I was just in Georgia talking to a lot of, of, of poor black people about their neighborhood and walking around and having to say, you know, when I was a little girl, this was the barber shop and this was the grocery store, and they knew the names of the people who owned those shops, and they were all black-owned shops. And uh, there was a complete town, and the money more or less circulated within their little neighborhood. And now those shops are all boarded up, they're gone. And where people get their groceries at the you know, gas station, you know, because that's the only place that still exists that sells milk you know, or whatever. And that's all corporate chain stuff. And then you look at it, and it's all the regulations that really made the little mom and pop store illegal. It was the whole larger economic framework that sort of squeezed the life out of anything small and uh, forced everything to get big and corporate, you know, because they were the only things that could clear the regulatory hurdles. And it was also just about, you know, when you build a giant Walmart somewhere, it sucks all the business out of your town and it just you know, pushes it into one giant pot because who can compete with Walmart? I want to ask you one last question. And I, I have to preface this by saying that, you know, we, we are not a, a political organization at Strong Towns, and we're not trying to advocate for one set of parties or not. I've said many times I'm disgusted with our entire political system. It's interesting because in the wake of, you know, the vote on British membership in the European Union, and in light of, you know, some of the, the dialogue we're having in this country around where our national politics should go, I think there's this awareness now of people, the blue collar worker, which is not what we're talking about here. 10 years ago, we would have said the angry white men. And now today we're saying, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something there with globalization and, and people losing out and not staying ahead. In the context of what you and I are talking about, people, the new pioneers in Detroit and the poor always getting screwed and, and essentially having people be able to find their way in this, kind of complex uh, system. 
how do you react to what happened in England and how do you react to our national politics today? I lived in England. This was many years ago, but I, I have some direct, you know, personal life experience in the UK. The pendulum of history swings back and forth. You know, there is a time when you need to shut down your borders and when you need lots of regulations and you need uh, tariffs so that you can protect home ministers. And then there's a time where that becomes stifling and you need to loosen up and you need to innovate and you need to allow the economy and culture to move in its own natural direction. Uh, and then that gets out of hand. And then the pendulum needs to swing back a little bit. The American middle class that everyone is so nostalgic for from the 1950s and 60s when, you know, one person could have a job and support a family at a middle class level with a house and a car and, you know, the backyard and all that, that wasn't a naturally occurring thing. That was all kinds of federally uh, mandated policies that artificially lifted a lot of people up out of poverty and out of the working class into that comfortable middle class. It didn't happen by itself. It wasn't magic. Uh, it was all sorts of tax policies and, and uh, import tariffs and all that kind of stuff. We let go of that at a point because it, it became a little bit too rigid and stifling, and there was a tremendous amount of innovation. When I was a kid, you know, you had a black and white TV with rabbit ears, and there were three stations, unless it rained, and then there was only two. Uh, you know, and the phone was this big, heavy black thing that was physically bolted to the wall, you know, uh, and all you did is talk to it. It wouldn't take pictures. There was no one in it. So we had all this innovation by deregulating and by loosening things up. Uh, but now we're too far in the other direction, right? So now things are going to be swinging back. And we don't do these things voluntarily. We don't just decide that we're going to jack up taxes and tax the, the rich. We're not just going to slap regulations so that you can't import cheap things from China anymore. It doesn't work out that way. What happens historically is that when things move too far away and the middle class is gone and everyone is disgruntled and pissed off, rightfully so, we have wars. That, that's the mechanism that we have in, in society to, to make these corrections because nobody lets go of what they have voluntarily. You know, nobody, nobody decides, you know, I, I just got, my house is way too big. I don't need all this stuff. Yeah. That, that's not how it goes. And also, nations rise and fall. The yeah. Both the World Wars were the greatest redistributive actions that, you know, the last 200 years. Yeah. And we're, we're right for one of those. You know, every long human life, every 80 years, give or take, there's another one of these events. That, and they don't last very long. I mean, it only takes about four years for all of the old stuff to get wiped clean. Now, the new policies that come in after these events, sometimes they're better and sometimes they're worse, but they're different. There's been a reshuffling of things, and we're due for one of them. The last time it happened was the Great Depression in World War II in the 30s and 40s. Before that, it was the Civil War. Before that, it was the Revolutionary War. This is right about due for another one of their shufflings. I'm not looking forward to this. This is going to be ugly and messy, but it's going to address all of the things that the Republicans and the Democrats are just never going to be able to work out on their own. It's, it's not going to be a voluntary process. Johnny, I absolutely love you, man. It is great to talk to you, even when, uh, you know, you, you take me to task a little bit. I know it's all in kindness. So thanks so much for agreeing to chat with me. All right. Well, thank you for, you know, any friend that will tolerate me, that, that's all I need. I just need people to put up with me. <laughs> that's all I have. <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'll always put up with you, man. All right. <laughs> thanks so much. Johnny Sanfilippo, uh, thanks everybody for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. 
we need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 